You have reached Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey, a ministry and podcast of the Discover Young Adults Ministry at the Preston Crest Church of Christ in Dallas, Texas. We meet at 945 on Sunday mornings, and we have small groups all throughout the week. We are located at Preston Road and Highway 635 in North Dallas. My name is Jacob Hawk. I'm the Young Adults Minister and the host of this podcast. It doesn't matter if you are single, dating, if you want to be dating, if you're married, if you want to be married, or if you're divorced, or if you're trying to figure out at what stage of life you are passing through. At the Discover Young Adults Ministry, we want to help you discover life, discover love, and discover the Lord. If I can help you or serve you in any way, or if I can pray for you, please email me at jacob at pressandcrest.org. Well, we are glad that you're joining us again today for Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey. My name is Jacob Hawk, the host of this podcast. We just finished a series where I had the blessing to interview each Preston Crest minister about their different areas of service. Hopefully you have caught up on that. If you haven't, go back and listen to all of those episodes. Today, I am most privileged to have, first of all, not everyone gets to have a gold Olympian, visit them in their <laughs> office, uh, but not only a gold Olympian, but a very dear friend of mine, Earl Young, who lives here in the Dallas area. Uh, Earl and I have formed a great relationship the last couple of years, and I invited Earl to come on in and tell us a little bit about his story. Earl, we're glad that you're here. Thank you. Thank you, Jacob. So... I'm looking at your shirt right now, and for those people listening, he has on the Olympian shirt. I wore um, the wardrobe this morning. Wore the just, wardrobe. Just for you. Okay, yeah. so tell us a little bit about your uh, your life and background, and kind of the ministry that you have going on right now, and then we'll get into some specific questions. Jacob, when I when I talk about uh, my life, I talk about the two most defining times, and uh, first time was uh, winning an Olympic gold medal. Um, I'm originally from California and was uh, invited to go to Abilene Christian to school. Of course, they were a great uh, track power for many years, still are. And uh, a fellow named Bobby Morrow, who some of your listeners might recognize that name. Bobby was a three-gold medalist in 1956 in Melbourne and really put Abilene Christian on the map mm. worldwide. He was just – the way I describe it to my kids, I, I tell them that it's uh, – uh, yeah, they know who uh, – uh, some great golfers are so relate to those mm-hmm. bobby's on the cover of life magazine and sports illustrated and just just made a big hit around the world mm-hmm. so he was my hero when i was in high school and uh, uh he and uh, oliver jackson the coach at abilene christian came to california to run the coliseum relays and uh i got a call from my dad and uh, message uh, to the high school and the message was to call my dad, so I called dad, and he said, son, he said, Bobby Morrow and Oliver Jackson are here in my office. Could you get out to have lunch? <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, I hopped in a 55 Chevy and scooted up there, and sure enough, there was Bobby Morrow. And uh, this other man I didn't know, Oliver Jackson, but uh, who my dad uh, said actually became to, came to be my second father. Mm-hmm. Wonderful man, great coach, uh, very very influential in my life. So that day he told me about Abilene Christian and Oliver could embellish. He told me of Abilene <laughs> Christian and his beautiful campus. And today it is, but sure. it took a few years to get there. But uh, I ended up at Abilene Christian at age 17 and uh, 
two years later at age 19, I was standing on the winner's stand in uh, Rome, Italy, wow. uh, receiving a gold medal. Wow. What a story. What a story. So um, let's talk about the Olympics a little bit longer. Earl, when did you kind of set out to become an Olympic athlete? Jacob, I, when I was in junior high and high school, I, I read so many stories about the great uh, Olympians and uh, great athletes and never dreaming that, uh, or only dreaming, I suppose, that I could ever fill one of those slots. Uh, at 17 in high school, I ran the what was called the 440, the 400 meters, mm -hmm. pretty much the same distance. I ran 49.6. Mm. One year later at Abilene Christian, uh, I ran 46.6. Wow. So we knew something was going on. And uh, then in Rome, I ran 45.9. I took sixth in the 400 meters, but uh, that tied the Olympic record, but the old story of Picking your battles uh, that day, I, I picked a rough battle. It was a new world record of 44.9. And then, of course, we came back in the 4x400 relay and set a new world record in 3.022. Uh, and that's where the gold medal uh, wow. took place. Wow. But as far as uh, it was a dream, mm -hmm. it was a dream. Uh, I, will, I will share with you a, a very personal point to me. It means more to me than it does anybody else in the world, and that is that Another great hero of mine was named Glenn Davis. Glenn was mm -hmm. also in the 56 Olympics, won the 400-meter uh, hurdles, and ran on the uh, 4x4. He won the 400-meter again in 1960 with me, the 400-meter hurdles, and then I handed off to him in the relay. Hmm. And to help you climb into my mind, there I was, a 19-year-old boy, handing off to my hero uh, in the Olympics. Uh, big event. Big event for me. How old would he have been at that point? You were 19. What I was him? 19. Oh, Glenn would have been 20, uh, 25 probably. Okay. Okay. Oh. So you you improved your time by three seconds and then another second, and I'm not real familiar with it. Most people won't be. How hard is it to improve your time by three seconds? That seems pretty substantial. Uh, coaches are always amazed. Yeah. It's, uh, it, yeah. It, it's, it's very unusual. I can explain it uh, this way. At 17, I, I had four more inches to grow in height. Wow. And the body, uh, when it reached that height, was then able to handle the work mm -hmm. that it takes to run the 400 or do anything uh, competitively. And, you know, it's uh, – God, God blessed me with uh, with speed mm -hmm. and a great body, mm -hmm. and I, I I talk about that uh, when I speak sometimes about what an awesome body I have. That's not a that's not a brag. Right. I didn't create the body. Right. God gave me the body. Now I took it and did something with it. So the the body was His. The gold medal was mine from from His gift. Mm -hmm. So what was the training like to prepare to be an Olympian? It's a, it's a dedication that uh, uh, that everyone who reaches world class with their body, uh, world class competition. Uh, it's a dedication that uh, few really are are prepared to take. I've known some 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 great potential. I've known athletes with some Olympic potential who just didn't want to to do it. I don't condemn them. I no no fault. Uh, just that it was not their choice. Mm -hmm. God gave them an awesome 
body to that could have competed in the Olympics, but they chose not to train it that way. Uh, it takes total dedication, things like, uh, uh, whether it's important or not, you get it stuck in your mind that it is, wait a minute, I'll drink no Cokes, mm-hmm. I'll eat no hamburgers, I'll eat no fries. Uh, does that contribute to it? Yeah, I think to some degree it does, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean you have to be just terribly strict, but it is a dedication, it's 100%. Mm-hmm. So for you, was the exercise training or the diet regimen more difficult? You know, I wanted it so bad, Jacob. Neither one of them were. Yeah. I didn't I didn't feel like I was giving up any part of my life because I knew what my goal was. Mm-hmm. I knew what I wanted to do. And wasn't convinced 100% that I could get it done. I was probably the most uh, surprised of anyone when I crossed that finish line in the Olympic trials. I, I actually... Uh, uh, we had to run a semifinal, then 90 minutes later, run the final. Mm-hmm. And I came off the, the curve in the final in the lead. And that uh, uh, surprised me because usually I was a come from behind type of runner. Mm-hmm. And Sports Illustrated had a picture of me that said, grimacing Earl Young. I wasn't grimacing, I was right. grinning from ear to ear because I knew where I was in the race and where everybody else was, and I knew I could get one of the top three, which would, uh, uh, give me access to the to the Olympics. Jack Yearman caught me at the tape, but I really didn't care because I had made the team. So, and then we'll, we'll get on to the spiritual stuff, but I, this is fascinating. We've talked about this a lot, and every time you talk about it, I enjoy hearing about it. Tell us what the experience is like standing on the platform, hearing the national anthem, knowing that you represented your country, not just in the Olympics, but represented them very well at the highest level. What's that like? Jacob, I've isolated runners, uh, maybe all athletes, but runners, since I understand that, to two categories. There's guys that can go out, and if there were no one in the stands, they'd go out and do their best. They could break a world record because they did it all for themselves. That's good. Uh, I ran for others. I ran for my school. I ran for my parents. I ran for the, uh, uh, you know, some psychologists might have fun with it, but it, it's not, it's not a big deal. It's just that uh, I, I preface your question with that statement because the Olympic stand for me, uh, you hear so often what a, what a great event it is to mm-hmm. listen to your national anthem, see your flag go up on the center pole, mm-hmm. realize that for your country. And that's fine, but in all honesty, I didn't do it for my country. I did it for, as I said, for my friends at Abilene Christian, mm-hmm. for my for my mom, my dad, people I love who really mm-hmm. appreciated what I had been through. Right, and right. Again, I'm the greatest patriot you'll find. Sure you are, yeah. But, but my thrill was uh, uh, making folks like that happy, folks I knew well. Well, I'm not sure any 19-year-old fully grasped oh, the side of it for country either. You're caught up in what you've just achieved. But what a story. Um, and in many ways, your life has taken even a more dramatic and impressive story the last 10 years or so. Um, but still going back to the young age, preparing you for the future, how did winning the Olympics affect your faith, both in a good way and also in a bad way? 
It creates challenges. Uh, an Olympic gold medal is, uh, is an unusual item. And there are people who give you acclaim and people who want to be around you simply for that, not because they really know you or care about you. Uh, so it attracts both good, bad, and uh, good and bad attention. Uh, it has been a great uh, door opener for me. I've been fond of saying, and it's true, and that is that uh, uh, that medal will open pretty much any door. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, hold on, we've got a That's your theme song, huh? You like that theme song? <laughs> that sounds like you're running for the Olympics there. <laughs> uh, excuse me. You're fine. It'll open any door. The fact of it is... Uh, People like to see the medal, and then you you better have something else uh, going within the next Mm -hmm. two minutes. It's not Mm long-lasting. But it has been an advantage to me in life, no question about that. It's been around the necks. It's traveled with me a lot. It's been around the necks of prime ministers and presidents and and children in the Congo and Africa. Uh, It it travels with me regularly. And uh, that's what it's for. People enjoy it. People enjoy seeing it. And that's... uh, uh, that's meaningful to me, like sure. bringing that pleasure into their life. Sure. Okay, so let's fast forward how many years. Uh, you were 19 until you won. How old were you when you received your dreaded diagnosis? Ah, few years well, ago? okay, I was 71. Okay, so let's fast forward, what is that, 52 years? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that day, what what you heard from the doctors, and kind of what started this yeah, Latest my, my partner and I had uh, started a new company. We were traveling a lot. Uh, uh, and I had this sniffle, this cough that came on in August of that year, in August of 2011. And I couldn't seem to shake it off. Now, we in Texas and Dallas, we know that time of year, we're not surprised to get a little cough, a little asthma situation mm-hmm. or a sniffle. But anyway, it wouldn't shake off. And uh, so I made an appointment with my doctor. And... Uh, sitting across the desk from him, he's looking at the file, and he said, Earl, he said, yeah, you, you haven't been in in four years. I said, I know, Doc, I'm feeling good, except for this sniffle and cough I can't seem to shake off. He said, well, since you haven't been in, he said, have you got time to go through a few tests so I can update the files? Uh, and so I said, sure, I've got the time. And, and uh, so we did the EKG and blood test, et cetera, and I'm walking down the hall getting ready to leave, and he's walking up the hall. And he said, uh, oh, I'm glad you haven't left. I was just getting ready to call you. Come in my office. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I go in the office, sit down across him. He looks at me. He says, Earl, he said, uh, you don't feel bad? I said, no, just this sniffle and cough. Now, looking back, I, I see it a bit differently. I, my energy was not at the level it should have been. But right then I said, no, I'm just, just a sniffle and cough. And he said, uh, well, he said, you should feel bad. He said, your white factory is shut down. Mm-hmm and very low on whites. And I said, okay, what are we going to do? Thinking he was gonna say, well, you're gonna take this shot, this shot, and this shot, and these pills, et cetera. But no, he said, I just called across the street to Texas Oncology. I want you to take this file. An oncologist will meet you at the door. Wow. So I take the file, go across the street, and sure enough, an oncologist meets me at the door. And he looks at the file and he said, "Uh, Mr. Young, this is not good. We need to do a bone marrow biopsy. Right there, Jacob, I began a part of my life that I, I am totally in a learning mode. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the next step's going to be. I, I'm not sure what a bone marrow biopsy is, but I'm about to learn. They uh, take you back into uh, uh, 
one of the rooms and they put a needle in your hip, take some fluid out. I go and wait in the uh, waiting room for a while. The assistant comes and gets me. I go into the doctor's office and sit across from him, the second white coat for the day. And this time, this doctor says, Mr. Young, I have some bad news. Now, I don't know how many times you've heard that in your life. Very few, I hope. Maybe never. That's, that's pretty strong. I have some bad news for you. I can't remember any occasion like that, as a matter of fact. But he said, uh, you have acute myeloid leukemia. Do you know anything about leukemia? I said, doctor, I barely know how to spell leukemia. Mm-hmm. He said, well, let me explain to you. And he takes me through a few of the blood cancers, of which are about 70, but he just describes the worst because then he says, uh, you have the worst. You have acute myeloid leukemia with an FLT3 mutation, which about bad as it can get. Well, I think all of us know the next question, whether we ask it or not, and I did ask it. I said, how long do I have? He said, maybe three months. Hmm. That, uh, that can come as a big shock. I mean, there's nothing leading up to this, just all of a sudden, a normal day where you have your coffee and breakfast, uh, three o'clock in the afternoon, a doctor tells you, hey, you're gonna be dead in three months. Hmm. Uh, his, his bedside manner was better than that, but, uh, but that was the bottom line. He said, now here's the three choices. He said, that's what's going to happen if we don't do anything. Or we can begin to give you chemo and medication and see how long you can can go, how long you can live. Or the only cure for for bone marrow cancer, for blood cancer, is a bone marrow transplant. Well, boom. Mm -hmm. The sun's shining again. Wait a minute. There's a cure. Uh, he said, now you get to choose what, what you would most like to do. I couldn't imagine anything else except choosing, hey, let's go for the, mm-hmm. for the bone marrow transplant. What I didn't know when I said that, I didn't know that only four out of 10 people find a matching donor. Six people die because they can't find a matching donor. Like I said, I didn't know that. I didn't know that till four months later, quite honestly. Two weeks before uh, this diagnosis, in Offenburg, Germany, a little village up in the Alsace-Lorraine territory, close to France, close to Strasbourg, uh, a lady named Christine Wagg became a bone marrow donor, which means she swabbed her cheeks. That DNA went on file at the National Registry. Well, uh, because of Christine becoming a bone marrow donor, I'm here today. Christine was the only match out of 22 million on file then that fit my needs. Wow. Had she chosen not to become a bone marrow donor, had she chosen not to register, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation today. So I checked into the hospital the night that uh, the doctor finished his diagnosis. I checked into Medical City, Dallas. I began four rounds of chemo over the next four months and pretty much lived on the 11th floor of Medical City Hospital. And then on uh, January 21st in Offenburg, Germany, Christine traveled down to uh, to Frankfurt to a hospital there. And the doctor put a needle in her left arm, just like a, a blood transfusion. When the blood flowed into a centrifuge, spinning out the stem cells, and it was those stem cells then that they brought to the Frankfurt airport, directly to DFW, directly up to my room. It was almost midnight on January 21st here in Dallas. 
when two very short nurses stood on chairs to get that bag as high up as they could get it to get gravity to pull all of that, those cells, those life-saving cells of Christine mm. into me. Now, Jacob, I always stop there because it's a great metaphor for me. And I hope everyone understands the metaphor, and I think they will. And that is that, for me, that's the same way that Christ, when we invite Christ into our lives, He gives us the same thing on a spiritual basis. Mm -hmm. He takes our lives over if we will let Him. He runs our lives and promises eternal life through that. It's very similar in my mind to what Christine did for me. She gave me life by sharing her life she didn't have to give up her life mm -hmm. she just had to give up some cells mm -hmm. and another interesting fact from that if you check my blood today you'll find out it is o female <laughs> that always gets a laugh but i moved from b positive male to o female and uh you know, we kid about women running our lives. Well, I'm not fully committed, man. I mean, the whole body, everything. So uh, I'm alive today because of Christine. It's an amazing story. And uh, obviously, you're very thankful for Christine. But what's most impressive about about this is after you got out of the hospital, your life kind of took a change of a course. And you devoted what you do now to raising awareness about blood cancer and testing and getting swabs. So tell us a little bit about your ministry and nonprofit that you started. It took me about three years to get back to, uh, to really where I could function on a reasonable basis. First couple of years of recovery were really tough. Hmm. And the toughness is it's, it's uh, uh, you've invaded your body with somebody else's cells. So right. it takes a while for that to, uh, to calm down. And, uh, and I'll tell you at this point, too, that normally, since I received that transplant at age 71, the odds were that I would get five years. Well, I'm going on my 10th. Wow. And I'll just let you make up your mind as to where my mind is spiritually on that matter. But you're right. I begin to think about uh, uh bone marrow donors this this fact that i told you previously about only four out of ten people finding a match uh, and most of that that's not because people turn down the opportunities people don't know mm -hmm. that they can save a life awareness is a big big part of this and my partner dkms which is the oldest and uh, largest organization focused on increasing awareness and registering donors uh, they're out of germany actually and that's where my Christine had signed up. So I teamed up with them uh, after hearing them say one day how pleased they were. Uh, they had been to uh, University of Missouri and had a drive and had 1,300 sign up. And I went home and looked up the University of Missouri and it said 30,000. Wait a minute, 1,300 out of 30,000 and they're happy about that. Well. I was to find out that humans being what they are don't always respond to mm -hmm. even the knowledge that they could save a life. But we began the foundation. <clears throat> we focus on uh, we focus on faith-based universities for this reason. They have a chapel service. And that way, I'm able to come in and uh, the gold medal helps a little mm -hmm. bit to, to get the opportunity to, to speak and to tell those students what what we need in the way of bone marrow donors and why we need them. So we've worked with uh, schools like Abilene Christian, Harding, uh, et cetera, and over the last five years we have uh, 
swabbed over 16,000 students, and more importantly, 61 lives have been given a second wow. chance through through this work. <clears throat> Pardon me. Now, last year was like for so many of us, just turmoil in so many ways, and uh, we have to go on campus to do our thing to really make it work. We tried to do some virtual drives, but virtual just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So we look forward to getting back on campuses this fall, and we're going to put a new wrinkle on it. Mm -hmm. In 2019, I tested the market for giving some scholarships to the nursing schools at these universities for their help with holding the drive. So we're having a, uh, uh, a golf tournament here in Dallas on July 26th at Stonebriar. Mm -hmm. And that effort, the sponsors and the players will be contributing money to, uh, to giving scholarships to the nursing school. Now they can uh, divvy that scholarship up to their nurses, they can buy new equipment, whatever they wanna do with it, but we're encouraging them for certain levels of success in the drive, certain percentages of the student body that sign up will be increasing the size of a scholarship. Oh wow! Okay. And I think we've got a we've got a unique year. We've all, we're all coming off a year knowing just probably more so than ever in our lives how important nurses are to yeah, us. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. We we really some people would have never understood how how important nurses are to us had it not been for the terrible year we just came through. So helping student nurses uh, who will be helping us uh, find matches for people that. Uh, We'll die if we don't find the matches. Well, I look forward to playing in the golf tournament. I played <laughs> in that on July 26th. But amazing story and uh, amazing work that God is continuing to bless. So, you know, you've had all kinds of experiences. Olympian, uh, you were successful in business. Then you started this nonprofit. Uh, had a life-changing experience where you heard time clock was shorter than you had ever thought and you've outlived the time clock so uh, you know one word that you and i talk a lot about together is the word purpose right so all of these experiences how has it helped define for you maybe in a more adequate way what the purpose of life is all about you know jacob the, the word purpose the word calling um uh, for my particular personality and for whatever, how I've developed over these decades, uh, when this event happened in my life, I I never really felt like I was gonna die. That's, that's not been a, that's not been a worry. Mm -hmm. And let me say with no ego whatsoever that uh, dying is not my, not my worry. Uh, I believe. I'd like some more time, like mm -hmm. some things to do, not ready to go yet. We'll leave that with the Father, but uh, it's all good after this. Mm -hmm. But this opportunity, I don't think I've ever had a, uh, let me start at a different point. 10 years ago, uh, I thought I was really following Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, this event in my life has uh, uh, increased that. Uh, where it's almost as though I could think back and think, wait a minute, you were, you were actually lukewarm. Mm -hmm. well, what a nasty thing to be. I don't think I was aware of that, but I'm aware of it now. I know the difference between lukewarm and totally buying in, mm -hmm. totally buying in. Uh, I'm blessed to have this 
this purpose. I'm blessed to have this this work to do because it gives me a chance to talk about my God, my Christ, to tell everyone how uh, how I, how I love love our Father in heaven. How I want to carry out His work. It's a commitment that. I don't think I could have committed to 10 years ago. But it's it's very easy to commit to it now. I think we all hear that word uh, purpose. We mm-hmm. wonder what our purpose is maybe. Uh, I have no doubt my purpose is to, is to run this foundation, to save lives. But in doing that, in, it's almost as though it's a uh, it's a platform mm-hmm. to talk about God. Right, right. It gives it blesses me with an advantage to bring up the subject. Where if I were doing something else, I might not, not might not have that. Mm-hmm. Certainly, now, we've does. all got we've all got some way to do that. Mm-hmm. Mine's not any more special than yours or anyone else, but I I know what mine is now. Well, I can tell people I play JV baseball. That's probably not near as impressive as being an Olympian gold medalist. But but you're right. We all have a story. We all have an angle to come from. Yes. Uh, and, yes. and that's what, you know, so many times in the New Testament when Jesus would perform miracles and heal the sick, he would so often tell them, go go tell people what the Lord has done for you. And we, right. we all have a story. Right. Um, we all have a frame of reference in that regard. Uh, Earl, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about the church and the future of the church and um, challenges facing the church today and challenges that are going to continue to come to the church. Um, obviously, we don't have an abundance of time to go into all those details, but what do you think are some of the biggest issues that the church will have to deal with in the next couple of decades? I think the church of today in the United States, and I've changed that to worldwide. Uh, I try to follow it uh, in Africa and other places. And, of course, I spent a quarter of a century in Africa on business and, and been involved over there. And so I've seen, I've seen Christianity in other countries. I've seen Christianity behind the Iron Curtain once mm-hmm. in my life. I've, uh, I don't think we in the United States, even though we know and we read things like 16,000 congregations being shut down last year. We know we know there's trouble. We know there's, like never before in my life, hearing lies, seeing lies. Uh, seems to be a, a lot of evil out there today. A lot of desire to overcome uh, Christianity, to push believers back, to change their minds. I think uh, I think we have some real testing going on, mm-hmm. and I don't think that we're going to get out from under it anytime soon. Mm-hmm. I believe we're on a on a path here of uh, continued challenge. I was listening to my car radio while I go driving over here about uh, martyrs in uh, in certain part of the world, and how that we on a daily basis, we being you and me and the rest of our brothers and sisters here in the United States, we don't, uh, uh, we think about persecution. Many times our word for persecution is actually inconvenience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm talking about people dying for the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never been asked to do that. I've never been threatened to do that. I never felt like I was in a position to do that. And yet there are people around the world right now, while you and I are sitting here talking and people are listening to us, there are people facing that mm-hmm. like never before or maybe like uh, maybe like 2,000 years ago. 
Mm-hmm. I think we're. I think we have a great challenge in this country. I would. I was with a group of men in a prayer time yesterday at lunch, and our prayers. Many of our prayers were for a revival. Mm-hmm. We need things. We need God to turn things around in this mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of progressive thinking. There's a lot of folks out there that would tell you the Bible didn't really mean what it says. I've never seen that like I see it today. Right. And yet the Bible does mean what it says. God God didn't offer suggestions. He offered commandments. That's that's the bottom line. And it seems like the church is going to need uh, voices that are not only bold, but voices with a large platform, like you're talking about, that aren't afraid to take on a national audience. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And Jacob, it's, it's got to be. It's got to be from the Bible. That's right. It's not a man's opinion of what the Bible says. It's what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. It's really not confusing when you follow it from Genesis to to Revelation. Uh, It's uh, it's a great story. And it's a complete story if you use the whole Bible. That's right. I saw a quote today from Charles Spurgeon when I was reading along. I know you know about Charles Spurgeon, but the quote was something along the lines of, uh, no church has the right to say what the Bible says. The mm. Bible has the right to say what the church is supposed to be. Amen. Amen. And uh, we've got to get back to the Bible, um, obviously in the church, but also also in this country. I've seen quotes on banners right here in Dallas in front of a church that misquoted a verse in the Bible because I know what their objective is in misquoting it. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. We can't do that. There's no permission for that. There's only condemnation for that. And I think as it says pretty clearly in the Bible, woe be unto those that try to lead folks off the path. Right, right. So, Earl, if you could write a letter to that 19-year-old teenager standing on the platform earning the gold medal, uh, what would you write in that letter looking back at it today at the age of 80? Wow. You know, I'd probably just tell him to settle in, mm-hmm. follow the Lord. He's not going to believe the things that happened to his life, in his life ahead of him. Some just awesomely good and fun and and some painful. It all It's, it's all there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But uh, that boy was set up, that 19-year-old boy, I remember he was assuming that, hey, Life is always going to be like this. Mm-hmm. You always get to win. That's what went on in his head at that time. Well, the 80-year-old man's learned that, no, there's lots of losses. Mm-hmm. There's lots of mistakes. There's lots of time that you didn't pay attention to what we're just talking about now. You didn't pay attention to what God said in the Bible. You didn't pay attention to what Proverbs told you. It was all there. You don't have to find it all out on your own. You can go to the Lord and find it out ahead of time. The discipline that goes with it, uh, rejecting the world's ways, that world's pretty tempting, Jacob. Mm-hmm. It, it is. can get your attention. But you can always go back to God. There's the nice side of it, too. I'm sorry, God. Okay, come on back. It's great advice. Great advice. 
on a much less serious level, would you tell that 19 year old, don't run on pavement? <laughs> yeah, I probably would. <laughs> <laughs> You've run enough in your life. Just walk the rest of your life. Just walk the rest of your life. Well, Earl, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come and uh, be with us today and for your great insights and advice and just great thoughts. Jake, it was an honor. Thank you very much. Grateful for you and your friendship and your ministry and look Earl Young up. You have a great red website, website, a great website. It's Earl Young's team. Is Earl it? Young's team. Okay. www.earlyoungsteam.com. You bet. And if you're a golfer, come out and play on July yeah. 26th. Yeah, come play with us. Stonebriar Country Club. Okay. Good. All right. Thank well, you. thank you for listening today. And as always, keep your eyes on heaven. And we will talk to you next week. Amen.